It just simply cannot be done without GPS. If GPS went down, those companies would be, they would be out of luck. Welcome to the Space Angels podcast, episode 15, Pinpoint. I'm your host, Chad Anderson, CEO of Space Angels, the world's leading source of capital for early stage space ventures. You can find us on social media at Space Angels. In this podcast, we explore what's happening at the bleeding edge of this new entrepreneurial space age and speak to the founders and thought leaders at the forefront. Today, we're going to be talking about GPS, which is integral to our investment thesis. Space-based technologies are the building blocks of innovation. They are what enable our global economy. GPS began as a military technology, which quickly became an economic one. Those early infrastructure investments by the government were leveraged by tech pioneers Trimble, Magellan, and Garmin, who not only made the signal more useful and accessible by military troops, but also for commercial purposes. The importance of this space-based signal cannot be understated and is now ubiquitous in our everyday lives through applications like Google Maps, Lyft and Uber, and Pokemon Go, which have accounted for some of the largest venture outcomes in history. This is why I'm so excited about today's guest, Greg Milner, the author of Pinpoint, How GPS is Changing Technology, Culture, and Our Minds, named a best book of 2016 by Wired, The Financial Times, and others. He's a copywriter and editor featured in the New York Times, New Yorker, Bloomberg, The Guardian, Time, Rolling Stone, and more. He also gives talks and lectures related to GPS and other geospatial-related subjects at Columbia University, Stanford, Shriver Air Force Base, and the National Space Security Institute. Greg, super excited to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Great. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we have a lot to cover today, and I can't wait to dive in. But to start us off, can you first tell us a little bit why are you personally interested in space technologies and geospatial issues? Well, it actually started with my interest in GPS, and that started with the fact this is about like, almost 10 years ago at this point. I just started noticing that GPS was seemingly everywhere. It was migrating onto our phones. It was something everyone talked about, but nobody I talked to seemed to know what it was. And that, you know, and I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if it was a specific technology or just a kind of a whole suite of geospatial technology. So I decided to find out, and it was like peeling an onion. I mean, the, just when I thought I'd figured out you know, all that GPS does, there'd be another thing until I'd basically encompassed pretty much every aspect of, of modern life. And so that, that's what got me interested in that. And, and on a larger level, just geospatial issues. Just I'm fascinated by the idea of how we define even what here and there is. I mean, it's all subjective in a way. There's no such thing as right now, right here. It's it's something that we define. So that's on a larger level. That's why I'm interested in geospatial stuff. So interesting. So I w- we're going to dive into some of those points uh, a little bit later. So in the book, you start by discussing the Polynesians' navigational and seafaring, seafaring prowess, leveraging e-talk and the celestial techniques used by various cultures. And I was just telling you earlier, your book's actually a required reading in our office. And so we all felt that this was an excellent way to establish both the importance of navigational tools, but also the need for a system like GPS. So this is a, a big, broad question, but can you help us understand what makes GPS such a powerful tool and how it addresses the limitations of previous navigational methods? Well, basically, GPS is powerful because, well, on the most basic level, no matter where you are in the world, it works. And it's it's something that, you know, from pretty much every point uh, on the globe, you've got a direct uh, sight line to enough GPS satellites for it to make it work. Now, 
it's powerful, though, also because it's such a big uh, source of timing. And in a way, that's what makes it even more important, or, or at least as important as it is for geolocation. The fact that it's pumping this time signal that's very, very accurate, and so can be you know, with these incredibly synchronized clocks on these satellites, synchronized to, I think, within a billionth of a second, that it creates like a really, really enormously powerful timing source. So the fact that from a geolocation standpoint, I mean, what it does is it, it basically gives us a way to always know where we are. And that sounds really banal because maps could do that. But this is like an overarching way to like no matter where you are in the world to know where you are. And that, that's really, really powerful. I mean, in, in a way, GPS, I guess, from a geolocation standpoint, doesn't do anything that paper maps didn't already do. But it does it so much more powerfully, almost too powerfully some way. I mean, it can be seductive how well it works. And in a way, it, it, as much as it prevents you from being lost, it also creates sort of new ways of getting lost. Yeah, and I was fascinated to dive in into when you compare it to um, seafarers and the three different pieces, the navigation, wayfinding, and dead reckoning, mm-hmm. which, you know, people don't use in everyday language, but, I mean, they, they perform these functions in everyday life. Right, exactly. I mean, wayfinding is a kind of a tricky concept to describe, but it's basically, you know, the idea of how we are aware of our surroundings and how we move through them and know where we are in relation to everything else. And the reason I started out the book talking about the Polynesians is, well, I mean, first of all, the fact that they found these little dots in the Pacific, which is so big, you know, every other landmass in the world could fit within the Pacific. And over, you know, a few thousand years, the Polynesians found these tiny little dots and they, they did it through trial and error to some degree, but they also developed these incredibly sophisticated navigational techniques that didn't require what we, you know, the things that we use. I mean, in a way, if I could just go back to GPS, it's kind of the apotheosis of this whole Western way of looking at the world because it gives us latitude and longitude, which is ultimately what we're getting. We don't think of that because we always see the blue dot on a map. The Polynesians didn't need that. They didn't need latitude and longitude. They had a different way of looking at the world that was almost unfathomably complex from the way we think of the world. It's a completely different belief system in a way. Yeah, I want to pick up on something that you mentioned. So time, time is a funny thing that I think a lot of us take for granted. I learned recently about railway time. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that prior to 1840 in London and the train system there, in 1840, the Great Western Railway had established railway lines between two cities. And this was the first time that they synchronized two local times. And it's super interesting to me because before that, time was just local. Yeah. And when you turn on the news, even today, they say, hi, I'm, you know, Brian Williams. Today's November 21st and it's 5 p.m. or whatever, you know, and they always do that. And the idea behind that at, at the news hour was to synchronize your time. And, and the idea of synchronizing time has, has eluded us for a very long time. And it's actually a relatively new concept. And in your book, you assert that, you know, first and foremost, GPS is a clock. Yes. Even though you and I, you know, mostly use it to find our way places. And so can we talk a little bit about that and and the importance of that? Sure. I mean, first of all, GPS is weirdly hard to define when people ask what GPS is. And what I always say is is the signal that comes from the satellites. And that signal is ultimately based on time. And by the way, what's interesting you said about railway time, because not only was, was time not always synchronized, but even distance and location wasn't always synchronized. Every country used to have practically its own datum, which is, you know, the sort of ground zero by which all other points were defined. And one thing that GPS does, it, it doesn't didn't do this single-handedly, but it kind of creates one grid for the whole world that we all follow. I mean, again, they, that was a sort of a gradual kind of post-war sort of thing. But getting back to time, 
Yeah, I mean, the entire system works by timing, and that's why when I say GPS is a clock, it's it, it can't function unless all those satellites are synchronized in time. And I, can, I don't know if you're – I mean, I can talk about the nuts and bolts of how that works. I don't know if that's something you want to talk about. but I do want to get into a little bit just because, again, it's a signal that I think everyone uses and everyone sort of takes for granted. Right. When I don't think they understand – how it works, you know, the space segment, control segment, yeah. the user segment, and all of that. I mean, it'd be great to dive into that a little bit. I mean, the, the way to describe what GPS does, first of all, you have to understand it's what's called a passive navigation system, meaning that we don't have to transmit anything for the satellites to send back information and tell us where we are, which is why when people say GPS is tracking them, I say, no, no, GPS can't track you any more than when you turn on a radio, the radio can track you. Other things that you do are, are letting people track you, but... Basically, the way it works is that every spot on Earth has a line of sight to at least four GPS satellites and a constellation of 24 active satellites orbiting, I believe, 20,000 kilometers above, above the Earth. If, if, you, uh, if, if you're a GPS receiver, and that can be in a phone or in a nuclear missile, doesn't matter, it all works the same thing. If it can measure the transmission time from one satellite, it can tell how far away it is from that satellite in the same way that if I threw a baseball to you and you knew exa like exactly the speed that it was traveling, you could figure out where you were, how far away you were by how long it took to get to you. So because the signal is traveling at a constant speed at the speed of light, uh, your GPS receiver can tell because the signal has a time code in it. Oh, the signal left the satellite at this time, and now it's reaching me at this time. So I'm this far away from that satellite. Now, if your receiver can do that simultaneously for at least three satellites, it can define its location in three dimensions. And it actually technically needs four to like iron out some, some inconsistencies. But essentially, if it can do that with the satellite simultaneously, it can figure out, okay, I'm this far from this satellite, I'm this far from that satellite, I'm that far from that satellite. That must mean I'm here in terms of latitude and longitude. And that happens every single time we get a position fix. And what's incredible about that time signal is that the signal from the satellites is almost unfathomably faint. It, it, by the time it reaches us, you know, like a, I think it's a few milliseconds after it leaves the satellite, it, it barely exists. And one of the amazing things about our GPS receivers is that we can sort through all the electronic crackle and noise around us and pick out just enough information we need from this tiny little signal in, in, coming at us from four satellites. Tiny little signal, but infinitely scalable almost, right? Yeah. So you've got the space segment, which is the satellites that are in orbit. Right. You've got the control segment, which is the tracking stations on Earth. And then you've got the user segment, which is every one of the world's GPS receivers. And you also mentioned in your book that you could double that, triple yeah. that, and it wouldn't it wouldn't have any effect on, on the signal. There's two things that I find, well, there's many things I find amazing about GPS, but two that stick out is that, first of all, I can't think of another technology that hasn't changed really in 50 years, and that's a plus, not not a minus. You know, I mean, GPS has been tweaked, but essentially the system is exactly the same technology as they figured out in, in 1973 when they when they began. But also, as you say, it, it's infinitely scalable. I mean, because all it involves is us receiving a signal, we know the number of, of receivers could double, it could triple tomorrow, and it doesn't matter because all, all we're doing is taking in a signal in the same way that you could triple the number of radios in the world tomorrow, and it wouldn't matter because, because all you're doing is receiving the GPS signal. It doesn't matter how many receivers there are in the world. And so, like you say, it's, it's infinitely scalable. And that's one of the 
things that makes it so powerful is that we'll never be able to overwhelm GPS. It's, it's impossible to do that. And so we'll never have to beef it up in that way. We have to improve it in other ways to you know, improve the timing a bit, to uh, increase some security issues. We change the satellites from time to time, but we'll never have to say, oh, you know what, there's too many people using GPS. We, we've got to do something. And by the way, when I say we, we is the United States Department of Defense, which I think is another thing people don't realize. You know, the space segment and the control segment are both handled by the U.S. Air Force, which kind of administers the system, and a series of tracking stations around the world, some of which are controlled by the Air Force and some of which are controlled by the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, probably the least well-known wing of the U.S. intelligence community. So that's the control segment and the space segment. The user segment is all of us. And that's, you know, that's the segment that's bigger than, than anything else. Because, and because the signal is, is relatively transparent, which is part of, the, part of its structure, we can always figure out new things to do with it. I mean, when people say, oh, my GPS failed, 99% of the time, they're wrong. GPS didn't fail. And I've talked to you know, people at the GPS Control Center at Shriver Air Force Base in Colorado, and they're very intent on this. They said, you know, we're responsible for the satellite and the signal coming off of it. Once the signal leaves the satellite, it's yours. You know? And so if something goes wrong, with, I mean, GPS is a very robust system in terms of how it works. So when you say GP, your, your GPS failed, it's probably the map program in your phone or whatever that gave you weird directions. It wasn't the signal itself. Fascinating. And GPS has been called the world's only global utility. It's universal, free-for-all, accessible by anyone, and influencing everyone. Yeah. And you say in your book also, although less visible, GPS's influence on the world equals or exceeds that of the internet. And in fact, you point out that the internet could not operate without the precision timing controlled by GPS. Right. I mean, it, it's a little hazy because not every you know computer network is taking GPS time, but a lot of them are. Yeah. But yeah, I absolutely. I mean, when I say that it's more, its importance rivals, if not goes above the internet, it's because there's really no aspect of modern life that it doesn't affect. I mean, GPS is just, it's always there in the background doing things that we're not even aware it's doing, like regulating the electrical grid or regulating mobile phone networks or regulating financial transactions on the, the major exchanges because all these things rely on timing and GPS is a great source of, of timing and it's free. And, and yeah, I think it's it, the point really can't be made enough that this is free to everyone everywhere. I think some people feel like when they're in another country, they're using something else. And some countries, there are a few systems that, that are like GPS and they're getting more powerful, but GPS is still the sort of the bedrock of all of them. And, you know, I always say, like, if an ISIS terrorist is getting a, a position fix, he's doing it courtesy of the Pentagon right. because he's using GPS. In theory, the Pentagon could decide to turn off GPS tomorrow. There's, I think, by U.S. law now, it couldn't do that. But in theory, it could. It'll never happen because it's, GPS is too important now. But if there's such a thing as American soft power... GPS is the best example of it. And it's hard to compete with free. Exactly. It's hard to compete with free. And that was the problem that I think Galileo, the European system, made at first. It's not like that now, but they were going to you know, charge for it. And GPS being free is a huge part of its appeal, obviously. Yeah. And GPS has become our heartbeat, as you mentioned a few times in the book. So we've established that GPS enables our, our global economy. It's what ties us together, the precision timing plays a really key role in that. 
The estimated value of the GPS market in 2011 was around $9 billion. It had tripled by the time your book came out in 2016. I've seen reports that say $38 billion in 2017. The U.S. Department of Commerce recently published a report saying just a couple months ago that GPS had generated a trillion and a half dollars of economic value in the U.S. alone. Certain early GPS entrepreneurs rank among the wealthiest individuals. Yeah. Among the world's wealthiest individuals. But the true economic influence of GPS resists quantification, you say. Yeah. One of the people I talked to uh, who was one of the early, you know, involved in the the early GPS team, uh, he's become sort of like an amateur GPS historian. And and he set out, he said, you know, he tried to figure out the, the economic value of GPS and he gave up because he just kept getting numbers that were so large, they were almost meaningless, you know, like in the trillions of dollars that I think the way he put it is like they're meaningless only to everyone but scholars. Like it just didn't actually make any sense. So we kind of gave up. And, by you know, that was before things like, off the top of my head, Pokemon Go. It was before companies like Uber and Lyft came on the scene. There's always people who are figuring out ways to like add, increase the economic value of GPS. And it's becoming more and more difficult to untangle the worth of GPS from, you know, the worth of everything. Yeah. It's like saying, like, what, what's what's the value of telephones, you know, yeah. like in the 20th century, yeah. like that kind of thing. I mean, you couldn't, or as I say, like, how do you explain how valuable oxygen is to the respiratory system? Right. <laughs> for as much as we rely on GPS today, I think it would be surprising for most people to learn that from its birth in the Cold War until arguably the Gulf War, GPS wasn't really accepted by the government as the positioning and navigation solution. Can you help us understand what happened in the Gulf War and the years leading up to it that led to GPS being accepted and eventually celebrated by the government? Yeah, it's one of the weirdest facts of GPS history that the the Air Force, which um, it was basically an Air Force program that was it was kind of done with, with, the, with the help of several services, but it was essentially an Air Force program. And they tried to kill their own program on several occasions because... There was just a feeling, and part of it was an institutional thing, like the space segment of the Air Force, at least back then, as opposed to the operational segment, the people who fly airplanes and or repair airplanes or design airplanes. The space segment was very small, and it was looked on with suspicion, I think, by a lot of the operational side of the Air Force who kind of saw them as like weird pie-in-the-sky people. But And it still is. I think the, um, the space part of the Air Force makes up 10% of the of the budget and the workforce. Is it? Even, yeah, it's which is, I think, it was probably much less back then. I, I'm surprised. It's interesting. I didn't realize it was still that low. I figured in this day and age it'd be, it'd be bigger. But, but it, besides the fact that it seems crazy to us that they didn't want GPS, it's interesting to kind of dig in a little bit into the way what they said because what people would often say when the GPS proponents would try to explain is like, why do I need another navigation system? I already know how to get from here to there. And they would say, well, it's not a navigation system, it's a positioning system. And that's a subtle but important distinction. You know, it tells you where you are right now. And so that became, it was originally thought like this was going to be a way to drop bombs more precisely. Brad Parkinson, who more than anyone deserves the the title of godfather of GPS, although there were were a lot of people, he was, you know, a disillusioned uh, Vietnam colonel, I think when the Vietnam War happened and he helped design airships and he went to Vietnam to kind of see how they were working and the bombing campaigns there just, he he was so disillusioned and disgusted by how random they were that his feeling was like, well, GPS will be a way to drop bombs more precisely. So it was in his way, it was a more humane way to fight a humane war. What happened by the time you get to the Gulf War is that it had been slowly gathering, you know, sort of momentum within the military, but what happened in the Gulf War is it was 
GPS was used in some of the early bombing runs, and that was important. But the main thing that GPS did is that it allowed the U.S. and its allies to basically barnstorm across a featureless desert. The Iraqis assumed that that was going to be slow going for the U.S. because it's fe- you know there's no way to know where you are, so they thought. With GPS, and the funny thing about this was is that a lot of the receivers they used were civilian grade because the military receivers that were being built were just taking so long to build that they end up ended up buying some civilian grade receivers. And so that was what allowed the tanks just to go right across the desert. And you could make an argument that GPS, as much as anything, was responsible for that war being over so quickly. <laughs> it's so funny in the book, you, you have a few quotes and it says, you know how many times I've heard, what, is it, what does it do? It tells you where you are. I know where I am. Why do I need a damn satellite to tell me where I am? Yeah. So funny. And then also the other quote that just always sticks with me is, we're the Navy. We know where we are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, especially if you were someone involved in anything that piloting or being on a ship, you already had navigation systems You already you know, that were basically, I think, probably based on dead reckoning. And they worked okay. They worked fine. So in... In the mind of someone like that, they're thinking, like, well, why do I need another one? What's the and, – and nobody, not even Brad Parkinson, could foresee how much it would essentially eclipse even being – not only would it become important to the military, now it's part of, I think, pretty much every weapon system in the military. But the military use now is actually kind of a tiny percentage of all GPS use. It's been eclipsed by civilian usage. And people like Brad Parkinson, they kind of knew that that was going to happen. I mean, there was always a civilian signal, and they thought, maybe it'll be helpful for, like, airplanes and aviation. But they could not have foreseen, because, you know, back then a GPS receiver was a big desk, like, with a computer, and it's now it's a chip. So the Gulf War was also important from an entrepreneurial perspective, because it introduced commercial GPS companies like Trimble and Magellan to the world, yeah. as you mentioned. And in fact, in your book, you describe the, the families of soldiers in the Gulf War frantically calling Magellan, looking for GPS devices, ready to pay out of pocket for yeah. this technology. So it wasn't just that they were using commercial handsets, that they were actually, their families were going out looking for them, saying, please, you know, equip my family member with the best technology. And, well, and the funny thing was, it actually wasn't even the best technology, because the Trimble sets were the ones that were really made to be really exact. Magellan's, Magellan had a slightly different business plan, which was that we, we can figure out how to get people to where their car is in the parking lot, but we don't need to get them to to the exact you know square foot where, where their cars is so, but so but Magellans I think were were a little cheaper and yeah people were calling they were like clearing out electronic stores just to get these Magellan sets to soldiers in the in in the war, so in a way that was kind of how GPS it, it was almost like its debut on the on the world stage so it, it was what introduced a lot of people now it wasn't involved in for example those famous Gulf War shots of the missile going down the, the chimney or whatever. That, that wasn't GPS. Nonetheless, GPS was so important and just so ubiquitous that it just kind of started to plant the seed that, oh, maybe this is you know, important entrepreneurially. And I might be getting a little ahead of us here, but then by the end of the 90s, when the U.S. government turned off what's called selective availability, which was the military's way of scrambling the GPS signal for civilians a little bit because they were afraid of people figuring out how to you know, bomb the Capitol or the White House. Uh, when they turned that off, all of a sudden GPS became so accurate that the, the industry could really boom. Yeah, and I mean, I definitely want to talk about that because like any uh, advanced technology, any technology period, I mean, it can be used for 
productive or destructive purposes, yeah. right? And so that was actually a really important piece of all of this. And it wasn't until 2000 that Bill Clinton officially ended that practice, yeah. right? So what impact do you think that that had on, on the commercial market and the increased usage of... Oh, I mean, it was massive. I mean, it's, it's like if, you know, the power company finally said, okay, now electricity is going to be 24 hours a day. And then people, okay, good, we can build all these consumer goods that require electricity. I mean, it went from being GPS for for civilians, not not the military, but GPS for civilians went from being I think about as accurate as like a football field to something that would be accurate within a few square meters, and that was huge because that meant that you could come up with all these applications that required something that required a little bit more precision than just the size of a football field. The reason it took so long for selective availability to be turned off is that I think. The military just no one wanted to be the one to finally pull the plug, and then but and Clinton in in you know in consultation with with the military finally you know, finally did it through an executive order. But the reason it finally had had to be turned off is there were all kinds of like hacks and workarounds that you could figure out how to like if you really wanted to and you had the right equipment you could figure out ways to get around selective availability. So in a way it was kind of pointless to even keep it going. Although I think people who are really who were really into GPS at the time said that when there would be like a military, in like some sort of military campaign going on, they'd notice that that their own GPS would get less accurate because the military was turning it back on. I think when when the Haiti campaign began, can't remember what year that was. People said, or also people say, like whenever whenever the president would visit, you know, their area, they would see their GPS that go, you know, get. That's anecdotal, but who knows. Fascinating. I want to take a half step back and talk a little bit more about the distribution of the signal because I think that that was a really key piece of this, you know, of getting it out into the user segment's hands. And in the 1980s, the first movers, Magellan and Trimble, they were at capacity, as you said, filling military orders. And this allowed Garmin an opportunity to get in to the market. But there was a number of things coming together at the same time, right? You mentioned that um, solid-state memory mm-hmm. also allowed for the Garmin system that you'd put in your car to also not just have a local map, but also the whole country right. you know, in one system. And that's really when it started to take off. And I've got some facts here. From By 2006, Garmin controlled 60% of the U.S. market for navigation equipment, which was about uh, just under $2 billion in sales. And it was growing 140% annually. So... Garmin came in and made a huge splash in the consumer segment. People started putting in them these handsets in their dashboards in their mm-hmm. cars, and then we were really off to the races, right? Yeah. Garmin was, well, they were in the right place at the right time, and they had really good technology. They were very smart about it. And yeah, the, the growth, as you say, in the mid-2000s was just you know exponential, both in, you know, in, in sort of GPS use, but also specifically with Garmin. They, they really capitalized on it in a big way. Yeah. In addition to... The discontinuation of selective availability, we also think that Qualcomm's work in improving GPS signals on mobile phones and the launch of the Google Maps API were key in the development of what we now call location-based services. Definitely. Can you tell us about the influence on GPS like companies like Uber and Lyft and Bird, Snapchat, all of these things that we know and love? Well, if I'm understanding the, the question correctly, I mean they they can't operate without GPS. They they literally cannot operate without GPS because it's all 
it's all based on location from drivers knowing where to go to also all the things that go on behind the scenes, the analytics, and you know that where they all do you know very very sophisticated. I assume location analytics to figure out things like how how to price rides and and how to measure traffic, things like that. There's it's just simply cannot be done without without GPS. There's no if if GPS went down, those companies would be they would be out of luck. And most people know about Google Maps and using GPS for navigation mm-hmm. again. That's the way that we use it yeah. uh, daily. But there's lots of competing technologies out there. We mentioned, you know, that the Navy was using cutting-edge stuff back then, but also in every other aspect of our lives we had technology and there was actually some competing technologies around the same time as GPS that we were using for different applications. So for cars, we had a number of different beacon yeah. systems and things like that, and and uh, the military had their own systems. And so why do you think it is that GPS won out in all of these? And I don't know, maybe the Alaska Airlines and like the, the usage of it in aviation is a good example of this. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, one of the turning points was when the, that plane was shot down, I think in 1983, uh, that, that strayed into Russian airspace. That probably happened, the accident probably happened because they had input some wrong figures into their dead reckoning navigation system. And I'll just give a quick definition of dead reckoning if you, if you want to include. I mean, a dead reckoning system basically means that you measure where you are now in relation to somewhere you were in the past whose position you know. Uh, and that's the most basic form of navigation system. So after that accident in, in 1983, Reagan basically issued, I think, an executive order that said GPS now is here to stay. I mean, in, in so many ways. Now, in a lot of ways, it was symbolic because it took a long time for it to be really adopted by aviation, but that was a big symbolic step. Like, GPS, it, it sort of told the world, we had, we control GPS, but we're not turning it off, and it's always going to be available, and, and that was a big thing. And yeah, there were other sort of attempts to do things like in, in cars, but the simplicity level of GPS just won out. The fact that you didn't have to worry about like beacons here and there. I mean, and for the military, GPS won out because it was a way you know to get a position fix without and because it's passive because you're just taking in a signal. You're not having to transmit a signal that then tells you where you are. It was undetectable, you know, and, and that was a big big reason why you know the military finally figured out that that GPS was was a good thing but in general for for non-military uses there was just nothing as simple as GPS nothing as easy to use okay so we've been talking a lot about the positives of GPS but your book also delves into the darker side and can we talk a little bit about the vulnerabilities jamming spamming spoofing yeah. and what those things are and what we're doing about it? Well, I should start by saying that earlier I said GPS was very robust, and it is. It's a very strong system. However, the signal is so weak that it's easy to overwhelm, and GPS has become so ingrained so quickly that it it almost happened before people could really figure out the security implications of, of what was happening. There's two major ways that you can mess up a GPS signal. One is jamming, and that's just what it sounds like. And you can get little portable GPS jammers that will jam you know, all GPS receivers in, in your area and basically just cut the signal for them. That's bad, but it's not as potentially bad as spoofing is. And what spoofing is is when somebody transmits a signal from the ground that imitates the GPS signal. And so GPS receivers nearby are convinced that that's the signal they should follow. And that can have huge implications. When people talk about GPS going down, they often think about some worldwide shortage. 
Now, those satellites are far away, and they're moving very fast, and I've been to the control room in, in Shriver Air Force Base, and you're not getting in there with that. I mean, it's, there's doors that say, you know, like, if you don't come in through in three seconds, we use deadly force. I mean, it's, it's a really fortified bunker. But what the fear is, especially regarding spoofing, is that because GPS is used to regulate systems that are spread out over a very large geographic area, if someone were to do a successful spoofing attack that would affect, say, a few nodes of the electrical grid, all of a sudden it would start following wrong timing, it would get confused, and it would start allocating uh, power in, in wrong ways and you got blackouts. Or in the financial exchanges, if, if a spoof signal were to confuse the, the automatic trading computers, they pull out of the market, and all of a sudden, you know, there's a huge crash. In 2010, there was something called the flash crash, which wasn't caused by GPS spoofing, but it was the same kind of idea in that automatic trading programs just pulled out for some reason, and that created a chain reaction. So it's a chain reaction kind of thing that people are really worried about. Like I said, jamming is bad, and... Bosses who use GPS tracking systems to follow their employees, especially truckers, don't like them. I mean, there's so much. There, there was so much GPS jamming use on the New, New Jersey Turnpike around here that it was affecting the landing system at Newark Airport, which you know runs right alongside the, the freeway. But spoofing is the big fear, and there hasn't really been, at least that we know of, a major spoofing attack. But you talk to security experts, and they basically say, like, it's inevitable. It's, it's going to happen at some point, and we have to figure out what we're going to do about it. I mean, a few years ago, there was a slight timing error in one of the, one of the GPS satellites, I think just one, just a few milliseconds off, and it caused all these problems throughout Europe because that happened to be where the GPS, that satellite was over at the time because all of a sudden the, the clocks were just a little bit off, and they couldn't really synchronize each other within, within the satellite. So you throw the timing off, and, you know, it's bad news. And um, one of the reasons why we're so confident in this system and the security of the system is mutually assured problems protection. Like in the sense that everyone relies on this. It's the bedrock. And so you don't imagine that someone else would come in and really fundamentally, you know, mess up the system because they rely on it as well. But that's changing, right? These systems are complex and they're very expensive. And so mostly it's nation states that's building these. But we've got a lot of them. GLONASS is the is the Russian one. Uh, Galileo is the European one that's mm-hmm. being built. Baidu by the Chinese, Japan, India, others. France for a while was doing one. I don't know why, since the EU had Galileo, and I don't know what happened to that. But yeah, as you say, these and the UK is talking about doing their own one now with Brexit and stuff. Oh yeah. right, I forgot all about that. That's right. I mean. As you say, these these global navigational satellite systems, there's only a few of them in the world because they're very expensive to produce. It's not, you know, it's like it, like you said, it's really limited to nation states. And I think the reason why nation, some nation states build their own is sort of it's so that they know they've got they don't have to depend on the U.S. Except they still are because GPS is more powerful than than any of these. I mean, for a long time, this may still be the case. GLONASS was the only other global navigational satellite system that was like GPS in the sense that it had complete coverage and a full satellite constellation. At this point, I think Galileo may have caught up. But what's going to happen in the future is that GPS is always going to be the bedrock. I mean, the more the more systems you have up there, the better, the more accurate you can get geolocation services. You talk to farmers, for example, and they use some of the most sophisticated GPS setups of anyone because, for example, you want to land a plane. If you're a millimeter off or a few millimeters off, it's probably not going to be a big deal on the runway. 
But if you're a few millimeters off and you're trying to use a, a GPS system to harvest beets, for example, you can just, you, you'll split the beet in half. So when there's been problems with other satellite systems, like farmers I've talked to, they can tell when GLONASS is having problems because their systems are relying on GPS and GLONASS and even some other satellite things. And when some of those go down, they can see that it's a little jittery. You know, the, the, their, their position is not quite as exact as it is when everything is running smoothly. So more about augmenting the signal than, right. than yeah. That's what's going to happen, I think, in the future. And I think that's, that's sort of the official part of this, our space policy now, I believe, in the U.S., is that GPS is always going to be there, and it's going, we're going to work with other systems because the more you have, the more satellites you can take readings from, the better your position fix. And so, but GPS, I can't imagine a time when GPS isn't the sort of bedrock, the foundation of, of all this geolocation stuff. Okay, so your book was originally published in 2016, just a few years ago, but a lot has happened since then. Is there anything that's come about that's surprised you? Well, one thing I think I gave a little bit of short shrift to in the book, just because it didn't seem like as big a deal, was uh, autonomous vehicles. I mean, self-driving cars are a huge thing, and like a lot of navigation systems, they don't, they're not going to only use GPS, but they will use GPS. And, and I didn't see that coming. And I, I'm, I'm skeptical of the development of that industry for a lot of reasons. But as it's developing, it's always going to need GPS. I mean, GPS is always going to be a function. Of, and so that's something that, you know, that's a huge segment now or potentially huge segment that I just didn't see coming. Greg, on the show, we like to say that there's never been a better time to get involved in space investing. Given your position here and like your understanding of the GPS segment, can you give us your perspective on that and um, which areas are exciting for you? Areas within GPS? Areas within, you know, what you know in geospatial intelligence and what's happening, data from space signals, I guess, is a better. One thing that I heard, I mean, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning, is that I, as I understand it, there's been a somewhat of a l- little bit of a revolution in small, small lightweight satellites that don't fly that high above the Earth that can do things like, for example, take all the data from ships, all the automatic identification systems from, from ships. And that data, from what I understand, as it's repackaged and sold, is very, very valuable because just that ship data alone, it not only can tell you like how shipping lanes are functioning, but it also, because they have to do things like, the signal has to have what their cargo is and how much they're talking. You can actually do things like study trade imbalances. And so that stuff, you know, really, if you excuse the expression, like the sky's the limit because it's, the more data we can get from things like that, the more valuable, it just adds value to so many other things. Fleet management was a big area of growth in your book and it continues to be in terms of tracking the movement of goods and essentially... Supply chains. Yeah, yeah. exactly, and the Internet of Things. Right, actually the Internet of Things is, is a huge, I mean, is a huge, huge thing because so much of that depends on, on location. If blockchain systems keep continue to develop, a lot of them, some of them are going to rely on location. It's, it's actually a big problem is that how do you verify location within a blockchain system? There's People are working on that. But yeah, fleet management continues to be a, a huge thing. It, it's amazing how many people figured out, oh, you know what we can use GPS for is to track other people. And it's, you know, and so many employers will say that it's it's in, it's inflation proof because they see the, the savings immediately after adopting these systems. When people know they're being watched, sad to say, they they do things like I mean UPS, for example, has incredibly sophisticated location logistics and probably FedEx as well, that again, 
don't only rely on GPS, but they often, you know, GPS is, is in the mix. And they figure out ways then to, to optimize routes, to have fewer emissions, especially as cities continue to grow. You know, everyone's moving in the cities. These companies are going to have to figure out ways to get routes that are more efficient within crowded cities, you know, have fewer emissions, that kind of thing. So knowing location stuff is just really, really powerful in a lot of, a lot of business areas. And it all goes back to GPS, ultimately. None of it could function without GPS fascinating stuff so in the show notes we're going to have a link where you can go and find the book pinpoint how gps is changing technology culture and our minds greg this has been a fascinating conversation really appreciate your time today oh thank you for having me on thanks for tuning into the space angels podcast if you enjoyed this episode please leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode If you're interested in learning more about investing in space startups, I invite you to visit our website, spaceangels.com, where you can learn all about Space Angels membership and how you can invest in this exciting new innovation economy.